and welcome back to another episode of Doing Well, Doing Swell. I'm extremely excited for today's episode because I have great people who are coming on board to show you and tell you how they are making a difference in our world, for our society, and for the generations to come. You will be hearing from three amazing guests. And because it is Black History Month, all three guests are putting their efforts into helping the Black community or helping others understand the Black community and what we can do to make society a better place for all minorities. First, we will have Ashley Shannon, who is a fierce and fiery woman. She's going into helping those who are wrongfully convicted, and she's also going into policy reform. She is a advocate that if we want to see a difference in the world, then we need to get into the powerhouse seats to make the difference. Amen, Ashley. All here for it. And we also have Antoine Taylor, who is an extremely dedicated businessman who went from selling socks in his dorm room to creating a very successful clothing brand called Cause International that is funding these give-back trips to Kenya, Guatemala, Skid Row in LA, Chicago, Flint, Michigan, Detroit, etc. And he is able to give back to these communities, give back to these kids, and help them have hope for the future. You will also be hearing from Allie Christiani, who is extremely compassionate, extremely empathetic, and just overall an amazing person and advocate. She started a series called Connect the Disconnect, where she is addressing all of the issues that have happened in the past with American history, and then she's also addressing what is currently going on in America. It's actually really cool to hear her perspective because she's from Canada, and obviously if you're from another country, you're seeing different things, you're experiencing different things, you don't know certain history, and you have to teach yourself a lot. So her perspective is very valuable and I feel like is very eye-opening. I'm also just very touched by what she's doing because she's created a platform where people can go to learn about black history and black current events and I think we all know there's been a lack of education on that in some of our school systems and she's given us a place to get exactly that. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, learn a little bit from it, connect with these people, help them figure out how you can get involved and, you know, contribute to our society and the generations to come and make a difference. It is my pleasure to introduce to you the one, the only, Ashley Shannon. Thank you so much for being here and joining us on Doing Well, Doing Swell. When we went to school together, you were going to school for journalism. Yes, I was. What switched? Um, I started not liking the ending route for journalism for me. Um, pretty much while we were doing our classes and internships and things like that, I started having a change of heart. I obviously was covering more, if I could find them, social justice issues or the Black community in general. And I always looked at journalism as telling the stories of people who can tell their own stories, which I did appreciate. However, I realized shortly after I want to be a part of the solution. And so I said, you know, I can tell people stories all day, but if I can never help them address those issues after the interview is over or after the show has broadcasted, then, you know, I don't think I will feel fulfilled in life. So then I was trying to seek more and just fell into you know, the criminal justice and law atmosphere. Yeah. And you've always been like an advocate for anything that you believe in. So I feel like you have the voice and with your journalism background now, you know how to properly communicate and, you know, use those skills to advocate for whatever you want. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And I think that's the unique part of coming from journalism is that when I go into, let's say, like interviewing with clients or something like that, um, for law, I can still use all of those tools I was given pretty much. It's just in a different chair. I'm sitting in a different chair than I thought I would be. 
at the time. Yeah. So, so what do you want to contribute to the world and for the generations to come by going into law? Do you have like an, a goal that you're striving for? Yeah. So after leaving um, Illinois State and then getting my master in studies of law, I had the opportunity to work in a prison. And while I was working there, I became a huge advocate for prisoner rights, just civil justice um, entirely. And so I realized that the goal I have is to show people that work is more about your passion and your drive and why you've been placed here on this earth rather than just the next check. And so while, you know, six-figure jobs sounds luxurious, doing the type of work I want to go into, like criminal policy reform, um, working for the Black community, whether that be on the defense side or prosecution side, sometimes you take positions that pay you less in order to do more for the world. And it's kind of sad, but that's the world we're living in. And so I want to show young people that you know, you don't have to be the flashiest in the room or something, but you can still advocate for something that you believe in and be in these positions. And I even show that to some people today, today that are at the law school with me that want these big jobs. I'm like, at the end of the day, are you going to burn out from the job if you don't stick to something that fulfills you more? And so I hope the legacy that I end up leaving is that we as a Black community need to put ourselves in positions of power in order to show others, you know, what it takes to rehabilitate this entire country. Because if we continue to work on the sidelines and we continue to only be at the protests, but don't do any work outside of that, then what's gonna get done? So I'm like, let's be the ones in the legislature seat. Let's be the ones in the law office. Let's be the ones in the uniforms so that they can't tell us what we need because we're already sitting in those chairs. So we know what we need and we're gonna get what we need. Say it again, <laughs> say it louder. <laughs> Amen to all that. <laughs> you know, this is, it's crazy because like, I, I feel like I'm never saying anything too significant, but it's beautiful people like Michelle Alexander, they like came before us and, you know, she wrote the, um, the new Jim Crow and those theories, those type of people that came and did the bo- like the gr- uh, groundwork type research to put us in positions to be able to realize what we should be woke to. And honestly, I wouldn't even have been as woke to mass incarceration before that book came along. It's like people like that. I want like people to know it takes being in any position to wake up society. Even if you're an author, even if you're just a teacher, you can wake up this world. You just have to have the drive to do it. I couldn't have said it any better than that. And it's really unfortunate that our society doesn't uphold these positions with the appropriate um, compensation. Right. And I definitely agree. Um, I think I noticed from my dad though that my dad, I don't even know if you really know his story, but my dad has came under the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr., took over his fair housing um, as a CEO in Chicago, of the largest fair housing company at the time. My dad's been honored many, plenty of times for being um, one of Dr. King's mentees at the time before he passed away. Um, and my dad has taught me service for work comes first. So before I put, you know, the flashy things first to give back to society. And I think my mom did the same thing with teaching, which is why I'm comfortable in the position I'm in. You and your dad are the type of leaders that we need. Like you speaking out about all of this. And then also, you know, you said you want your legacy to be that you don't need flashy stuff in order to make a difference and live a good life. Like that right there is already like such a good foundation for being a leader. And I just, I really admire that about you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for even opening doors for people like me to still get our voices heard, even though people may be hesitant to listen to us. Yeah, you know what? But they're going to have to get used to it. <laughs> because <laughs> Honestly, because when your name's big in life and I'm coming up there <laughs> talking to you or whatever stage you're on. <laughs> hey, 
they're gonna have to because both of our names are gonna be in the shining lights we're gonna be too bold for them not to listen ashley right we're gonna be probably we're gonna be causing so much chaos they gotta Uh pay right they're gonna love to hate us (laughs) (laughs) look if you're doing something if you got haters you're doing something right amen I also noticed that you had uh, worked with the Innocence Project. Yes. When you were going into that, how do you know if somebody's truly innocent or not? Like, do you get to read over their stories before you're paired with somebody that you are trying to fight for? Do you get to see all of the evidence? Like, what what is the process of that? Um. Yeah, so while I was at U of I, I was in a beginner clinic, and we got to do the bottom line work, but we weren't. We didn't have our 7-Eleven license, which you need to actually like practice and be hand-in-hand with the client. And so we didn't get to do as much work as I would have liked, but we basically were the ones who reviewed the cases. So you were given a case, you were given somebody that wrote into the Innocence Project and said, this happened to me, please review this, this isn't right, X, Y, and Z. So then from there, you're getting their case file, you're getting reports, and you yourself actually are the one that goes out there and you do the research. So you're looking up what was said in the newspaper about this person, what evidence was out there against these people. And the one case I was able to read over, um, it was that we call it junk science. It was this crazy reason of basically somebody saying, because your phone number was registered to the cell phone tower and you have been incarcerated before, we feel like you're the person that did this crime. And the reasoning behind that was just that. Whereas, you know, in criminal law, you're supposed to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. Does that sound like beyond a reasonable doubt? Not at all. So when we hear those things and we're reading these stories of how the prosecution came to be and we don't feel like the right thing has necessarily happened, then we pass the case along to um, higher authority and we say to the you know practicing attorneys, we think this is a case that should proceed forward. This is why this is what came up X, Y, and Z. And what helped me a lot in my um, the time I was reviewing cases was that I would get a case, like I said, research it to the full extent that I could. And I would actually sit in a classroom. I would get a classroom and I would draw out the map of what people are saying happened. And from there decide if it's a case worth taking or not. Um, The process is long. It's kind of tedious. It's sad because somebody may be spending a lot of time incarcerated while while they're waiting. But, you know, we need people like the Innocence Project that literally work for less than their worth just to have other people get out and live their lives and so it was an amazing opportunity to even work in that position dang you essentially become your own investigator yeah you take on every role that no one else would get right (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly dang that's yeah you got to put a whole puzzle together and find the missing pieces right and then you have people out there you know depending on grants literally to get paid what sixty thousand dollars or something and then you have other people who are putting these people away for false reasons, false testimony. And yet they're getting paid, what, 90 on up? Yeah. I mean, it's just not fair, like I was saying before. I had also read in one of your bios, I think that you are one, wanting to get into law reform. Yes, policy reform. Yeah. What are you looking forward to doing and maybe like tampering with in terms of that? And I don't know much about it. So if you you want to give a little bit of background on that, that'd be great. Yes. Yeah. So policy reform is um, basically being in any position, especially governmental relations type positions, where you can advocate for something you believe should change. A lot of our laws have um, full extent of incarcerations that are just way too large. Um, they have they have weaknesses in them because sometimes laws are ambiguous. So people don't know that they're fully breaking a the law or that they could have such a sentence for 
at an extreme incarceration because they did something. And so I want to reform laws so that they make sense to society. They're written in the right way. But also, if you rob, um, let's say you rob a bank or something like that, and you get, I don't know what the number is, it, it depends for each state, but you rob a bank um, and you get, let's say, 20 years maximum. And over here, somebody sells a little bit of weed on the street. You know, it's getting legalized. So somebody over here sells a little bit of weed on the street. It's a 18-year-old or something like that. Should those two people be facing the same type of incarceration times? Especially now that weed is being legalized, we have so many people still incarcerated. Although weed is legalized and now in the hands of a white man, it's being seen one way versus when it's dealt in the hands of a black man on the street. And so I think it's it's crazy the world that we're living in and how we're rapidly changing. But at the same time, when society changes, our laws have to change. Our way that we're interpreting the Constitution has to change. Mm-hmm. And so in order to have justice, we have to we have to rephrase the way we're we're framing justice. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what my goal is to get these laws in order so they reflect the values of our society. We cannot say that our laws are a reflection of what society is when society is telling our legislature this is not what we agree with. So instead of seeing the majority as the people in power that have the most money, that have the highest um, positions in the world, let's look at the majority as the people who are below the poverty line, who are sitting down here waiting for decisions, waiting for stimulus checks. Let's listen to these people and what they need. And let's shape our laws to benefit these people. I couldn't agree more with that. I feel like as a race, as a society, we are constantly evolving. And I think our laws and the way of life should also constantly evolve. Like we should not be living in the same laws that we were, you know, a hundred years ago. Stuff, times are different, man. (laughs) Exactly. And even, even then, I mean, think about when our laws were written, they were written by straight white men. And so we have all of these minorities finally stepping up. You know, we have women stepping up. We have like men or young boys stepping up, but also black people at one point were only considered three fifths of a person and laws were framed when we were only three fifths of a person. Now I'm a whole being as recognized by law. So let me be a part of the reshaping of this country. Mm -hmm. We can't operate by old rules if we're trying to be a new country. And if we actually say we want to be renewed. We want to bring people into this society because let's be honest, America, not to bring politics really that far into it, but America was never great when it didn't consider a black man as a whole man, a black woman as a whole woman. Yeah. America was never great back then. So now we're, we have to take, we have to take what was built, break that and rebuild. It's going to take a lot, but in order to do that, we're going to have to reshape some of these policies that we've set in place And at the same time, in in doing that, hold these legislatures accountable for what is not done and what we need done. If you could leave anybody with any words of wisdom or inspiration, what would you say? I would say go after your passion because the reason that you were put here on this earth is going to take you further than any dollar amount ever could. And so in saying that, I'm saying that you may be the one person that changes an entire industry and you were born to do that one job. But if you don't do that, no one else can do what you've been put here to do. So whether it be like you're like Mallory and you're doing podcasts and you're out there and you're making your voice known and you're doing these interviews, getting people recognized for the efforts that they've been putting in, you may feel like something is so minor, but it can mean so much to the rest of the world. 
And sometimes it may take that leap of faith. Maybe I won't get the most money for this, or maybe I'll have to work a little bit harder if I want to work in this atmosphere, or maybe X, Y, and Z is going to happen in order for me to get to where I want to be. Maybe all these negative thoughts flow through your head, but when you're doing something that you care about and it's your passion and that's what fulfills you, then that's all you need. Man, I'm all, I'm all motivated (laughs) and inspired now. (laughs) I appreciate it. You motivate me. I'm going to have to call you for my pep talks. No, honestly, I'm going to need them after going through all this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to have to reunite, get together, you know. We are. I'm going to have to book it to LA. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. I just can't wait to share your words of wisdom with all of the people that listen to Doing Well, Doing Swell, because they need to hear what Ashley Shannon has to say. I appreciate it. And thank you so much, Mallory. If anyone needs to know about law school, anything like that, I'm always available. Just hit me up at Ashley Shannon 96 all social media. All social media. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Ash. <laughs> all right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here with us today, Antoine. It's a pleasure to have you. Of course. Thank you for having me. So you've started a clothing line called the Cause International, which you're using your proceeds to give back to the community through service trips, correct? Yes. So we use a portion of our proceeds, not all of it, but yes. So what, where did Cause International come from and what's your main goal behind this brand? Yeah, so it kind of started when I was in college. So um, I went to St. John's University in Minnesota where I was able to, I studied uh, bio pre-med and I played football as well. Um, so when I was going out there, I'm from Los Angeles, California. So I went out of state and I think when you leave college, I think that's when, um, you just start becoming more independent uh, for yourself. So, um, grew up with a single parent mom. Um, my father was still around in the picture, but I lived daily with my mother. So, um, I didn't really want to ask my mom for like help or anything, um, just because I know. Uh, she was working hard back home and I felt like it was like my time to step up and, you know, um, start providing for myself. So I started washing people's clothes while I was on campus. After I got, after I got done washing people's clothes, I basically uh, started selling socks because I was tired of washing people's clothes for like uh, two semesters. So I started selling customized socks in my dorm room. And after uh, a week, I was able to sell 512 pairs of socks. And holy crap! <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. My uh, my school, my school kind of knew who I was because I played football. Um, so like I was on the team, so like people kind of knew who I was. But um, and also they kind of knew me too because I was the kid washing clothes. But now, um, as I went into the venture of doing socks, um, it was crazy. So like I didn't under I didn't understand like how much people will like support me. And it was really cool to see uh, my school rally behind me and uh, able to sell 512 socks in a week. Um, when I got the, I was able to make the, I think I made like uh, four, like 4,000. Um, and at that time I've never seen that type of money ever to me. So I thought I was on top of the world. Um, but then when it was in my possession, I started thinking to myself, there's so many young men and women out there in worse positions. Um, but who's those young men and women out there um, trying to make a difference? And I think that's when it kind of hit me, like, man, like, I want to give back. So um, so this all started from you selling socks out of your dorm room in college. Exactly. Yeah, that's how it all started. That's so, incredible. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. 
So uh, were you designing these socks? Yeah, it was really simple though. Um, I can even send you a picture in an article. Like that was yeah, send that over to me. So when it comes to going on these trips, I saw that you've been to Kenya, Guatemala, Flint, Michigan, yeah, Detroit. That, when it comes yeah. to those, to those, how can you tell us a little bit about the process behind that and how planning these trips Trip. goes? I know for Guatemala, uh, when we went to Guatemala, when we installed water filters. Well, I should just go from the top. So Chicago is our first give back. And J- and John's from Chicago. So he grew up at a boys and girls club in the inner city on Southside Chicago. So he connected us with that opportunity. Then Detroit, we want to do something in, like we kind of went from, all right, cool. So like we know like what's happening right now um, with Chicago. But then the next year was like Flint was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So we went to Flint and then uh, we gave back um, – 200 cases of water to uh, uh, a, a homeless shelter. And then also we went to Detroit because it was like an hour away and we gave back to Martin Luther King High School. And we just like um, helped the seniors with college. We also helped them. Like we also donated um, like 1,500 uh, uh, worth of school supplies. Wow. And then, um, thank you. And then we went to, then I'm from LA. So we went to Skid Row. And we gave and we passed out 500 hygiene kits to the homeless. It was really crazy because I was probably driving around because I do a lot of work in downtown LA, and like um, I like I gave a thousand like bags, like jawstring bags, yeah. and like bus full of hygiene kits. And it was crazy because I was I, I saw one of my uh, jawstring bags um, walking around the downtown, and I gave that like three years ago, four years oh, ago. Oh my goodness, that has to be such a good feeling. Yeah, it was crazy. Like, I was just like, dang, like, obviously, there's more work to be done. But it's really cool to see, like, at a young age, the type of impact we were making at, you know, 19. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you guys essentially came together from all different types of backgrounds. And then you produced essentially these events where you got enough money to give back. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, I had a I had a team of like four of us. Um, like, so I started when I was on campus and then like I had a partner, her name is John Oliver. He's from uh, Chicago. I had a, another partner named Jacob Lucas. Um, he's from East LA. And I had another partner, um, Abdi uh, Musi, who's from a refugee camp in uh, Kenya. And um, we all play sports at our school. So we got to our school because of sports, J.O., a remarkable story. He has a one hand played on the basketball team at our school. Um, like literally crazy, inspiring. Um, yeah, that's was, insane. Yeah, insane. Yeah, so J.O.'s inspiring himself, like inspiring me day in and day out. Um, and he was kind of our person that was like, like people knew him and people knew like the great energy he brought. And that kind of gave us like the cause is like, like really good vibes. So me and him was like, like the vibes part. Then we had uh, Abdi who grew up in a third world country. So he always brought to us the attention of like, what's going on, what's going on outside of the US. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how we start targeting different problems. And Jacob is kind of like our execution person who's like, all right, this is the plan. Let's handle the plan. And then there's another guy named Alex Kuna. Um, he's from a rural community in Minnesota. He's in med school now. And he was like basically our person that 
it contacted the different um, people that we had a contact to and set up like the entire process. So I say all those people because everyone played a role. The person who kind of handled all of that, uh, all of, like the different givebacks was majority um, Abdi and Alex. And my part was just, we have to raise this amount of money. So I had to go figure out how to raise that amount of money. Is there, is there any experience or maybe key motto that, that reminds you why you do this and keeps you going when times get hard? Yeah, um, honestly, it was just because that first give back, this little girl came up to me and said, Antoine, thank you for giving me my first Christmas in Chicago. I feel like that moment made me uh... realize this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it kind of made me think like, all right, now how do I expand what I'm doing? Yeah, that's cute. That's one of those moments that's like just warms your heart. Exactly. If you could leave any advice for the youth or anybody who's listening to this, what would you say to them? I think I would tell them to just continue doing what you think is right at all times. I feel like that's something that I always struggled with just because like I want to make my mother happy. I want to make my family happy. I wanted to, uh, I was making everyone else happy, but I should have made myself happy. And I went to school for pre-med, um, whereas obviously if anyone knows me, they know that I'm a businessman. And um, I just say, even if it's hard or maybe you don't know the exact steps, I think following your passion is gonna make you live a healthier uh, healthier lifestyle, mentally and physically, because yeah. if you don't love what you're doing, it kind of hurts like your performance. And um, even though I know it's really, it's really hard for me right now. And sometimes I, I'm a little scared because like, it's not as a definite plan. It's not as like a for sure plan as like me going to med school. But I, I could tell you, I wake up every single day, like happy, like, man, I know I'm about to change the world. And I know what I'm going to bring to the world. Like no one else is going to be able to do what I do just because I'm so confident in my position and because I love what I'm doing. Yeah. You wake up confident and excited about what you're doing. Yeah. So how can we support your business and how can people get in line to do these service trips with you guys when they come available again? Of course, they can just connect us on our website, um, thecauseint.com and basically just reach out to us uh, over email. Also, you can reach out through Instagram, thecauseint. And literally we have someone checking emails every single day. So we'll reach back to you within 24 hours and uh, like more people know about what we're doing, I think is going to allow us to make a huge, uh, a bigger impact. Yeah. And we need more people like you guys that are stepping up and, you know, doing these creative things to be able to give back to the world in different ways. Thank you. I, I really, it. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and share with us what you're doing. And I also just really appreciate the work that you're doing. So thank you so much, Antoine. Of course. Have a blessed day. And thank you for having me. You as well. Before Allie and I even had the chance to hit record, we got into a really deep conversation. So basically, we were just talking about how uh, it's important to realize that, you know, back in the good old days, ignorance is bliss. And now we have media to bring all of this stuff that's going on in the world forward, which brings me to the topic of your series, Connect the Disconnect. Um, you're creating a platform where people who might not have accessibility to any type of education on uh, social issues, particularly in the Black community, and you're giving them a platform to get this information from, 
and learn. Can you just give us a little bit of how that got started? And is there a moment where you realized, you know, I, I want to start this series to give people a place to get their information from when it comes to Black history? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so really quick background on myself. I didn't grow up in America. I grew up in Canada and I came to America when I was 18 to go to school with you, <laughs> uh, where, we both, <laughs> where we both studied uh, journalism. And I think at that young age, I was so naive to even where I was. I've lived in around four or five different states now since I've come down here and I learned something new about this country and every state that I've lived in. And I meet people who are completely different from people I met in Illinois to the people I met living in Texas. And there's so many different, um, so many different societies within this one supposedly united country. And, you know, last year really made this more notable to me. Education is the biggest and greatest gift you can give to someone, I think, to allow them to to understand the issues that, that we're facing right now and how they're connected to our past and how history can repeat itself. And we, you know, people, the people who have sacrificed their lives to allow, you know, Black communities to be where they are now or um, the rights that we have now, like those people matter. And I want those people to be celebrated and known. It's not just Harriet Tubman. It's Isaac Granger. It's, you know, the list can go on with the amount of people who have who have allowed um, voting rights and housing rights and us to progress, but still with the understanding that we have so much more work to be done. So that's that's my main purpose with the project that I I built is I create the articles and the videos that detail specific history history lessons history character like people who existed in history that I think that you should know about um, in regards to um, different branches of institutional racism and then of course I speak then about how it is still a problem here and where it exists. So there are issues that people need to understand. And because of that, states like Michigan and New York, they're they're realizing that. They've hired task forces to go into Black communities and try to solve the problems that this country has created for them. And let's figure out a way to fix it. Um, I was having a conversation with a guy uh, a few months back and he was like, if you don't mind me asking, what is your stance on everything? And this was when uh, a lot of the protests and the riots were happening. And if you ask me, all of this starts with the economy and poverty. The The median income for a family of four in this country for a majority of Black communities is around $22,000. There's wow. There's like third world poverty that exists in this country. And I tell people all the time, I was just telling my mom, you know, when I lived in Louisiana, I would see it too. The the gentrification is absolutely insane here. You can literally be in a community with massive massive houses and next thing you know, you're in a community that of poverty that I have just never seen before in my life. Like even here in Florida, like 
I ended up in this small city when I was, I was trying to get to a train station. It's, it's called Opelaka. And historically it was, um, which I learned from a friend later on, it was one of the most violent cities in the country, um, around five or six years ago. And I think now Chicago has reclaimed that title, but it's interesting that the pockets where, of course, there is the most poverty is the most violent cities. And I just can't understand how a city can be impoverished for that long period of time without any intervention, without any, you know, government aid. Like, I just I can't understand how these places just get left behind and essentially, you know, and of course, they're the communities where um, they are majority black. And why is that? Well, history of redlining, history of all types of different institutional racism that have forced people to exist in communities where their only choice is to survive. There's no buildings in this city where people can work. They don't have cars. How are they getting jobs? Like, it's, I've just, I've never seen places like this before in my life, especially living in Canada. And I just can't believe this powerhouse country of America, the wealthiest country in the world has just allowed these places to exist and forget about them. I know how you look at America now after us talking for a couple of minutes, but how was it compared to Canada growing up when it comes to social issues, like I don't know anything about uh, Canadian history, so I don't know. Do you guys experience like racism on any type of level, like we've had here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Canadian history is 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 very is the same but different, just like the rest of the world. You know, Canada and America. At one point, we were both we were both you know colonized by the British, and the British, of course, had slaves. So yes, in a small part, we were a part of the transatlantic slave trade, but we abolished slavery very early on. And that's not to, you know, I don't like, I don't like the, you know, there's this ideology that Canada is such a great country and we never had slavery or racism. Like, no, of course we did. On a, on the scale compared to America, of course very 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 less like the underground rail (laughs) the underground railroad did go directly to canada for a reason but uh, racism yes (laughs) racism did exist there for a very long time um not again to the extent of jim crow which is my my biggest i want to i don't want to say pet peeve but sometimes canadians they don't realize that living in that country is a privilege in itself being where I'm from is a privilege. Like I never witnessed hate or, and it's not to say it doesn't exist there. Cause of course it does. We have our own elements of police brutality that need to be addressed as well. But to the magnitude that I've seen it here, my first few years of college, I witnessed racism. I witnessed, Hey, I saw the Confederate flag in Illinois and not even the deep South in Illinois. And I didn't understand it, but I remember calling my dad crying when I first saw it because I had never witnessed hate before in my life. And there was this idea in my head growing up that racism wasn't an issue anymore, even though I am a woman of color with a black father and a white, a white mother. Um, But personally, I grew up in a suburb. I grew up, you know, really in a private school system. I wasn't exposed 
to a lot of the social issues that I was privy to in America. Um, growing up now and understanding Canadian issues, it's not to say that there is, of course, there is, of course, racism there, but I just, I don't like the way that Canadians sometimes try to paint the same brush in our, in Canada as it is in America, when it is Mm. nothing, nothing like here. It is not. And I, and I just wish that more Canadians understood that and stopped trying to almost create issues because Mm. it's not solving the problems that we have. If people really want to talk about police brutality in Canada, we need to talk about mental health because that is one of the biggest problems that exists in the city that I'm from is we don't have enough mental health resources. So the amount of people killed by police in Canada are typically suffering from a mental health breakdown Mm. and the police officers are not addressing the issue but people are too often tossing it into the basket of racism like America, which I'm sure it does have an element, but yeah. the, the disparities of white people and black people killed by police officers in Canada are not as are not as great as in America where 13% of the population is black in America. And in Canada, of course, our population is much more smaller, but if you look at the statistics they are not black people are not killed at a greater rate in terms of population in Canada as white people. So it's really boils down to serious, serious drug abuse, mental health issues that exist in my country. And that is the issue that they need to tackle and and not be distracted by the the clear and blatant racism and historically the racism that exists in the police systems of America. So there are many differences, a lot of similarities, but like I said, the the racism and poverty that exists here, unless you have, you know, lived here, I I just I I get a little frustrated with Canadians in that sense that they just they just don't understand. And I don't think you can until you become proximate with stuff like that. Like Yeah. Sometimes you need to be thrown in the fire to really understand something. You do. You do. I visited Southside Chicago multiple times. I had friends that lived there when we went to school. And oh, I was this this little girl from the suburbs of Toronto was uh, <laughs> was in shock. It was it was shocking. And that's why the organization I work with now that is based out of Chicago Sometimes I think about Chicago and I think about Cook County and I just, I just feel like I can't, I can't leave that city behind in a way. Like I'm always Mm. drawn to Chicago issues, you know, the most violent city in the world. Well, why is it the most violent city in the world? Like I just, I just want to do whatever I can to help heal that city from all of the historical precursors that have led it to where it is right now. So as you're, looking into everything and working on your series and doing your research, are you finding that it's difficult to find information and topics or do you think there's enough educational sources out there that maybe people just don't know about? Yeah, I think there are sufficient, you know, what's interesting is the way is the things that I learn that are just recently being gathered. So stuff like statistics on 
different um, different branches of systemic racism, the research that are that's been done on those is some of it is very recent. So they don't even have um, statistics from years back because no one was gathering it. Um, there's a organization that Sean King started. Now, I don't always agree with everything Sean King says or does, but he did create this organization called Grassroots Law, and they spend so much time gathering data on all types of police brutality cases across the country, all volunteer-based. And the data has become very, you know, and it's obviously flawed because some um police agencies, they're not required to disclose um, abuses or violations. So they have to do a lot of digging, but it's more accurate than the FBI. Um, The FBI released reports that were inaccurate. So it's it's hard to trust, um, you know, certain systems in this country, but there are... That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of people... You know what I found the most interesting, Mallory? Um, I, you know, you know, it's funny. In a way, both of us are using our journalism degrees right now, but at the same time, you know, we're not, we're not like, all, <laughs> you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not doing exactly what we were trained to do. But of course, we're still using them as communication. So, um, but journalists, journalists are the most undercredited people in this country they are the ones who really do the digging they're the one most of the initiatives are led by journalists in this country they're the ones yes. who expose they're the ones who do so much work that they they're not i'm so i don't think they're fairly compensated the work that they have to do almost everything, no not at all it's crazy it's it's insane to me the articles i'll read by these journalists just through digging and hard work and you know doing things that no one else is brave enough to do to expose what essentially lies in the darkness of the democracy of this country and they're so vital to democracy and I just feel like I and that I get so mad when people are like you know fall into the trap of of they don't tell the truth or you know media is is terrible or whatever people want to say. And it's just wild to me. Most of my information I can gather from journalist-led initiatives who allow us to see what's going on. Journalists are very underrated and they are so easily attacked. It's Mm -hmm. like no one knows who else to attack, especially when they're watching the news 24-7, that they just go to attacking the journalists. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, these people are putting in so much work, not to mention they're not getting paid for it. Like mm-hmm. my friend, her first job out of college, she was making like, I want to say like her offer was like 22 grand. Crazy. That's, you can't live off of that. No. I mean, you can, you'll you'll manage it, you know, but like, mm-hmm. like you said, what the poverty line is technically under, Yeah. Um, what, 27 grand or whatever? Yeah, exactly. No, she would be in the, in the poverty line. <laughs> like I just I don't understand that like you have these people that are you know going out of their way to tell the stories of what's going on in the world like these people are essential to getting the word out about news like I I don't understand why they don't have as much credit as they deserve absolutely like we learned in um 
in college the and it's funny how many how many people don't know about the freedom of information act i was like just explaining to my to my husband what foia is i'm like we can have access to anything that we want you know they'll the government will try their hardest to work against us and make it difficult for these journalists to file these um foia requests but it's part of the constitution of this country we can everyone can legally file these requests and get information that they want and that's what most of these journalists did was use the freedom of information act to gather the information that's necessary and some of them waited years for the government you know whatever agencies they were requesting information from to um, get the documents that they need but they were persistent and that's where a lot of the information specifically about social issues in this country for years decades almost have been able to be brought to light like when I was talking about um, my most recent article, which is on police brutality, um, so difficult to write, by the way, it was a lot of really uh, some, a lot of these can be really difficult to write. Cause I have to read stories that I just, yeah. Yeah. In Chicago, um, there was an, a, an attack on police officers. I think two or three police officers were killed uh, years ago. And the agency out of the police agency out of Chicago in Cook County, they um, tortured and abused like a hu- hundreds of of black people in that county for a span of like five or six years, you know, burning them, setting wow. them on fire, gas chain, like crazy, crazy wow. things were going on in that county brushed under the rug by, um, Oh, I can't remember. It was either the mayor or Rahim or something like that. And it was a journalist who, you know, spent years interviewing, looking into the problem and bringing it to light. And only then were those people held accountable. Um, People, men were taken off death row because they were coerced to confess to something that they didn't do through means of torture. Like the, the list of those stories just go on all by a journalist. The, um, the paper is called house of screams. I wish I could remember the journalist's name because John Cohen or something. I don't want to say it incorrectly. Just wanted to pop in that the journalist is John Conroy and you can just Google search house of screams and his articles come up. Um, but it was all it was all him. No one would have known that story. No one men would have been killed on death row. Innocent men would have been killed on death row if it wasn't for a single journalist in this country. Yeah, who turned into being an investigator, essentially. Yeah, ex- exactly. Doing the work of the police against police. So frustrating. It's just so frustrating. <laughs> it oh can, yeah, it can be, it can be really, really a lot. But my, you know, the, um, I mentioned it before, but, you know, I really can't get enough of Brian Stevenson. Like, I really do watch everything that he says. He's like, he's like by Obama too. Like, I watch everything he says. Like, they're just so articulate. Um, and he, you know, when I work on this type of stuff and even with what I want to do. So ultimately, um, wanting to be a defense attorney, um, you know, I understand I'm a super emotional person, to be honest with you. Like I've had to kind of learn how to 
turn that off in a sense, but I'm a Pisces. So I cry over everything. So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I allow myself to cry and, you know, sometimes you just have to keep it going. But he said that I've always viewed you as like a, a, a very like activist person, like even when it comes to social issues and racism and stuff, but also in the vegan community, like yeah. I just always viewed you as like a very passionate person. So emotions <laughs> come with passion. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Right. I know it's, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I can just feel everything and it can be overwhelming, but he said nothing can be done if anger is the means to the end. If all you feel is anger and that's it. So that's not the, you know, that's kind of what I live by. I can't just read something and sit here and just be angry. What does that do for anyone? Or just be sad, Yeah, you know? You have to just, um, he always speaks about feeling hopeful. Like I, a lot of my friends, you know, and family, people I know, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be hopeful, especially when you're, uh, you know, last year she is, you know, there were points where I definitely didn't feel hopeful. I didn't want to watch a lot of those videos, but I did anyways, because, you know, I respect the people who choose not to. But for me, it's almost like sometimes I need that, that fire ignition again, like reminding myself who I'm doing this for. I feel like I grew up extremely privileged and I just understand I mean, I don't understand because I never experienced it, but I choose to try my best to understand why people do the things that they do, what I can do to, to help anyone or anything. That's what I feel like I'm meant to do because I grew up so comfortable and privileged. I choose to now try my best to, to just help in whatever ways I can, because I have the means to. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, um, because you are biracial, Mm -hmm. when you have conversations that are harder and the people aren't understanding, how do you, how do you approach those people or those conversations? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of us had those really hard conversations, uh, last year a lot, I feel like, which was, it was a good thing, um, and, you know, an interesting thing last year, last year was so, so fascinating. I think you might've seen on my socials. My biggest thing last year was there was on top of just, you know, the hate that we were watching unfold on TV, you know, the, the terrible things we were watching people do to each other. There was so much anger and hate on my social media between between each other people were just getting mad if you weren't posting getting mad if you were posting you're saying the wrong thing you're doing the wrong thing and we were all just trying to have a discussion and a conversation and people were learning and trying and educating themselves I had white friends come to me being like am I saying the wrong thing am I doing the wrong thing and I'm like don't don't allow other people's, you know, I am not even, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just so frustrating for me to watch people just allowing more hate to, to come from what should have been a positive thing. Learning experience. Yeah. Like, I don't care if you posted the black square and then 
didn't post again. Like, thank you for involving yourself at least in in the issue. Like, I'm sure, you know, thank you for maybe reading something on the internet you didn't know before. Like, it all matters, people. We don't all need to be in the streets. Like, whatever you're doing from home, the way that you hold conversations with people, hold people accountable. I think that was the biggest thing and the most important thing when people would come to me and ask what they can do. And I said, hold people accountable for, for what they, what they say, if you think it's, if you think it's inappropriate or, or wrong, whether it's a friend, family member or a coworker. And that was something that I, even I had to work on. I worked in an industry that was, you know, restaurant and club industry is extremely racist in Toronto. And I allowed a lot of things to slide that were said to me, that were said to my coworkers. And last year was a wake up moment for me. I've, I've made mistakes as a, especially as a biracial woman, you know, we understand, I think that we do have certain privileges, um, that we need to acknowledge, you know, we're, we're typically cast as the, as the diversity coin in a lot of industries and over a lot of, you know, sometimes well-deserving black women. And I understand that, you know, um, I can acknowledge that. And sometimes I don't think I stood up properly for a lot of my coworkers, for a lot of the people that I care about because, you know, I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to lose money. Like it was all very, you know, selfish and capitalistic. And I was okay with acknowledging that and learning and, and, you know, sharing that experience with other people. So we're all understanding the ideas of, of accountability and acknowledging things like privilege. But, um, I did feel, yeah, really bad for a lot of my, um, white friends last year, but I had a lot of really great conversations with them because you're right uh people do often come to me or um yeah and I can totally see them coming to you as well and discussing these types of things yeah and I another thing that you know last year I noticed is that I had friends who were you know educating themselves and trying to learn more and better understand and I think one thing that I noticed is that a lot of people got frustrated with those who were attempting to learn but had a more difficult time understanding Mm -hmm. and there has to be patience with that because you have to realize if these people have never witnessed it they've never seen it with their eyes in front of them ever they have never heard anybody say anything racist they don't understand it that that's never been in their world so there has to be a like a learning curve patience instead of anger and like completely annihilating these people when they don't understand something like yes exactly is not helping it's just not helping the case and I like would try to explain to my friends like as long as you are doing you know the work to better understand then I think you're fine like I don't care if I had somebody come to me asking if I like notice that certain of my friends haven't posted about like Black Lives Matter and stuff <laughs> Me like that. Me too. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I don't, I'm sorry. Really? Like, really? <laughs> oh my gosh. It was crazy. Girl, even last week, um, Feb- like February 1st, okay, first day of Black History Month, I had a girl posting on her story saying, 
you know, she's noticing how many people posted when when it was a struggle for black people. But now that it's um, we're being celebrated, you have nothing to say. And I'm like, what? Also, why are we judging people off of what they post on Instagram? Exactly. Like what a terrible Instagram. <laughs> it is a social media platform that doesn't even portray anything as it is, you know? Like Exactly. Uh, yeah. Not to mention that I know plenty of people that are posting about this, but then are doing nothing in real life. They're actually hypocritical to what they're posting, which is even more frustrating. Right. Ex- exactly. Exactly, girl. That's the thing. And sometimes when I read those things, I'm thinking, well, what are you doing? Are you only posting on Instagram? <laughs> like, you're yelling at exactly. these people. <laughs> but it's like, and I'm not saying, like, you know, you have to. And, and you know, of course posting you know power and numbers like it is powerful but it's also like if you're going to attack people then I don't know I feel like I might need to see more out of you so (laughs) yeah but I I do I do like how my feed is flooded with like like we were talking about earlier it's now flooded with creatives it's flooded with more educational posts um there's people like you that are flooding my timeline with, you know, your new series or people that are doing clothing lines and donating, you know, all of their proceeds to a foundation that helps fight against racism or it helps the homeless community or something like that. So mm-hmm. that is something I am appreciating uh, about social media because I'm seeing a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's absolutely fantastic, the things that are that are going on now like people are being educated and things that I'm sure they they exactly had no idea about and it goes even further out of you know um stuff like social issues people are you know educating themselves on financial literacy like we were just kind of yes yeah and and I just I love that because our generation is just so powerful like we have so much things just at our fingertips that we need to be aware of and use and, you know, elevate ourselves because a lot of what I, you know, elevate, being able to put ourselves in positions of, of power outside of government, you know, which I think our generation is so amazing at doing, um, will allow these types of conversations and issues to be able to stay at the forefront because we're the ones having the conversations. We're the ones who can tell policymakers and lawmakers what we want because we'll hold more coins in the basket. So being able to elevate yourself both educationally and financially, you know, they go hand in hand. And I'm I'm really happy to see a lot of people taking time during these really hard times to do stuff like that. Yeah, and I think there's so many different ways to learn that you like don't even recognize until you're doing it and you're like holy crap, this is really beneficial, more people need to know. And like your perspective of living in Canada compared to America is something that not everybody is thinking about and I feel like if somebody who maybe is having a hard time understanding just heard what it's like in another country compared to ours can at least say well at least I know this isn't normal for our country so I feel like hearing different perspectives on what how how racism is viewed in other countries is also like 
just a different way of learning that a lot of people probably don't think about. Yeah, no, I, I like I told you, it's it's so valuable for me being able to live here and and just constantly be learning about this country that I didn't grow up in and comparing it, not not always negatively, you know, um, to my own, but just the ability to understand the way other people live. Um, I, I teach I teach English to Chinese students, and sometimes our conversations go into you know culture different cultures and I just love the way that different societies um you know function and work in the world and you know one common thing is that we would all want equality and we all want to be treated as humans and there's just so many anywhere you live like even I told you living in different states in this country sometimes I felt like I was in a different country and people are just so different but at the end of the day our our common goal is to live life and live healthy and live peacefully and a lot of that comes from you know being able to have equal opportunities um, i've had to take you know a lot of time to learn about this country to understand how i can help to fix it so with connect the disconnect are you do you have like a future lineup for that, like in terms of plans, or are you just kind of going with the flow and continuing <laughs> to put out as much as you can put out? I do have a long list of topics that I'd like to cover. And so far I've only written articles. And then, so the series goes as I write as a historical article on the issue and then a present and then film the video as, as summaries, just so people have visuals and for my next series that goes into police brutality, um, I will do the same thing in terms of writing the history of police brutality in this country and then um, modern day issues. But I'm really excited. Something that's so amazing that happens as you get older is the way that you can connect to people that you were in college with in like through different um, through our different occupations. So right now with you and then for my next for police brutality series i'm gonna sit down with um an old teammate of mine who is a state trooper in illinois and have kind of a really great conversation um about you know so many different things and really figuring you know i want to hear her opinion on defund the police and police abolition and how we can change it and and better police and community relations and I'm just really excited to to talk to her about that because at at points last year I was definitely victim of criticism towards her and confusion with why she would want us uh you know continue a job that is so clearly dysfunctional but as mm -hmm. I go through my educational and understanding you know a, she's a black woman as well so I'm just I'm interested to hear, you know, maybe what she's doing maybe within her uh her police agency and and you know, just her thoughts on everything. And I think that I think that she she's always been someone who's wanted to change the world too. I think she's just doing it in a different way than I am. So, I'm just I'm interested and I'm really excited to be able to do that. And then um Yeah, that's going to be a really good conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be really powerful for the both of us too because um yeah exactly we we're gonna be coming from um 
two kind of differing opinions. But just like we talked about, that's so important. And as long as they're, you know, we're going to have different opinions in this country. And that's one of the biggest things I think that we talked about today is have different opinions, but we don't need to create more hate towards each other because of it. Be constructive and understanding and listening. And even if you walk away with the same opinion that you had, at least you learned why that person is the way that they are. And that's okay. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Preach it. (laughs) I'm like, yes, hit it. Every word. (laughs) I just think it's so important. Like, I don't care what your opinion is, but learn other opinions. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. (laughs) um and then one last question Mm -hmm. um if you could leave anybody with any words of wisdom or inspiration what would you say I would say that despite anything and everything that's going on in the world or with you individually always stay hopeful always stay active stay laser focused on what you are doing and what you want to do in the world get proximate, um, have conversations, educate yourself, and try to be the best version of yourself for you, your friends and family, and the world. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciated this whole conversation as a whole for me as well. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Mallory. You're doing amazing things. Thank you for creating platforms for creatives and discussions. It's like the best thing that you can be doing right now. And I love it. And you're creating a platform for education where people can, you can watch her videos and see her beautiful face. You can also (laughs) read her articles. I think it's amazing that you're doing both. Like it gives people options. Yeah. Yeah. Here's to creating more platforms. So can you tell us where we can find Connect the Disconnect? Yeah, absolutely. So it is, you can read the articles. It's going to be on a blog called To the Number Two blackexcellence.wordpress.com. Um, on that blog, you can hit the follow that's going to be in the right-hand corner, and that way you get them sent to your email. Um, also available on that blog is in the left-hand corner, you'll see our Twitter, Facebook, and the Instagram. The Instagram is at two number two black excellence and that's where you'll be able to watch the IGTV videos um I'm trying to make sure everything is put out bi-weekly but sometimes you might just get surprise videos or posts um I don't just write for my series sometimes I'll just write on things that interest me or issues um like I wrote an article when Trump was leaving the legacy of federal executions at a rate unseen by any other uh, lame duck president. So I, I just write about issues and and in this country and things that I think people should know about. And that's where you'll be able to find everything. And we need more alleys in the world. So follow her, <laughs> listen to her, get all of the good juices that she's throwing out there. <laughs> yes, positivity party. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> Positivity party. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure I'm going to be looking forward to all of the future connect the disconnects and everything else that you do. Um, 
because you're just amazing in all of the content you put out because you got that Pisces energy. You feel me? (laughs) If you guys would like to follow Ashley, Antoine, or Allie or any of their brands, I have put their social media in the description bar of this podcast. So please go check it out. Thank you guys for listening and for making it this far. Oh my goodness. Can you believe it? If you made it this far, say 67 minute club, eh? (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and taking the time to listen and support my guests as well. Remember that if you have any feedback or anything, you can reach me on Instagram at Miss Mallory Lovings. You can also email me at InsideMallory'sBrain at gmail.com. Remember to be well and stay swell and keep your head in the game. I'm your host, Mallory Lovings. Peace.